four Arnott's comes out with a product as Lavosh. They priced higher than us. So what that effectively said is, we're better than you. So we honestly thought as a family business, we thought we were dead in the water. So we put a little note in each packet and all it said was, this is a David and Goliath battle. We asked our consumer to continue to support us. We outsold that other brand two to one and we stayed on the show. They're gone? They were gone. Yay. <laughs> We had to think outside the square. We weren't prepared to lay down and die and be trampled on. We said, no, we've got this far. We're not going down without a fight. Welcome to Getting to the Heart of Business, brought to you by The Online Co, where we believe the best way to help small and medium businesses grow is by putting people first. I'm James Parnwell, and in this episode, you'll meet the woman behind a brand that you probably snacked on over the summer break. Jess Caluso is my co-host. G'day, Jess. Hey, James. Let's get down to the important things in life. What's your earliest memory of snacks? Oh, earliest memory of snacks? That's definitely a Jats cracker with some cheese or cabanossi on top, isn't it? <laughs> That's yours. <laughs> I, I, I was raised on Jats crackers with French onion dip. Oh, wow. And I don't particularly like French onion dip. Does anyone? It's one of the, I think it's a polarising one. People <laughs> love it or they really dislike it. Snacks in our house have evolved into a major gastronomic event. There's pickled vegetables from all the continents. There's fancy cured meats and things like lavash and all sorts of um, stuff. And usually what happens is by the time we've finished it and we're about to put the meat on the barbie, we're not really hungry anymore. That's the idea of a snack board, isn't it? That's right. You, you're in a big family. What's I, the snack situation there? Oh, well, as you may have guessed by my surname, I've married into a family of Italian background. Yeah, you're winning at snacks. A grazing platter is a is a regular feature. So we we have all the cured meats that you mentioned. We've got fruit, nuts. So our snack game is pretty strong. Yes. Well, uh, Karen Lebsamft is part of the innovation that happened in the 90s that moved us away from the horrendous snacks of the 80s. She's the CEO and co-founder of Courage on Kitchen the brand famous for its amazing lavosh. It's found in supermarkets all across Australia. If you haven't seen it, just have a quick look in the snack aisle. It's definitely there and definitely worth the purchase. She has incredible drive, a passion for quality and a resilience that's brought her company through droughts, recessions, and they've become a household name. But she doesn't like to keep the success to herself. Just recently, she launched a new venture, running retreats, courses and mentoring couples in business. For our interview, I took a visit to the Courage on Kitchen factory where Karen's famous snacks are made. Karen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, James. Well, firstly, I think I need to congratulate you. You've won a major international award, the Silver Prize for Women of Manufacturing in New York. Yes, so it's the Stevie's Award, Stevie Women in Business, and mine was Women of the Year Manufacturing Silver Award. So, so an international award. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you. When we go back to 1993 mm. and you've started a little family-run restaurant in Currajong, you would have had a kitchen, I imagine. <laughs> I wonder if you ever saw yourself winning an international award for manufacturing. <laughs> Certainly not. That was just the start of something that we didn't know would ever grow as large as it has. It was never imagined at all. At what all. did you imagine? You and your husband were at home dreaming? So how Lavosh came about, I think, is... It's almost the demand for the product is actually, it took us through. Yeah, it, it led you. Yeah, yeah, it led us to the journey of where we are now. 
back in 93, we were serving lavash on cheese platters. In lavosh, the restaurant. In the restaurant. And we didn't invent lavash. It was known by chefs around the world. Lavash is a flatbread. Back in the 90s, the only version of lavash was the soft lavash version that we knew yes. in Australia. But the origin of lavash flatbread is in fact little villages in the Middle East. Each would have had its own variation of lavosh. We were serving lavosh on cheese platters and that was trending at the time. Right. So our customers and our clients who came into the restaurant loved it so much that they wanted to take it home to impress their friends. So every week we would make up a little basket, got bigger as the weeks <laughs> went on, but a little basket filled with lavosh that we had actually baked in the restaurant. We would actually get the iron out and the ironing board and pop the lavosh into the bags and pop the business card in and seal the bag shut. And every week that basket was emptied as people wanted to take it home and, and impress their friends. Back then, people entertained with Jats crackers yep. and they aspired to the black box of Carr's water crackers and that's what our options were. And somewhere in the market, we found that there was an opportunity to bring Lavosh into the retail market. We started actually in the hamper market and people would often ring us up and go, where can I buy it? And wow. it sort of created a demand. What our clients loved about it, um, it just complemented their cheeses so nicely. It was a real new trending sensation and everybody wanted to be on board with that. Yeah, you rode the wave. Yeah. Just back to the restaurant, your husband's a chef. Yes. What was your role? <laughs> My role is front of house. So I greeted the clients and the customers and, and, you know, made them feel welcome. And really, because we come from hospitality, when somebody walks into a restaurant, they need to feel incredibly welcome as if they're coming into a home. So good food goes along with good service. And together they make a beautiful experience. Yeah, so that's really grounded you in face-to-face. -face. This is how people think, this is how I need to care for them and, and listening to them. So, I mean, starting a business, it's usually the first year or so that's the most tricky. Did you kind of land on your feet and everything was <laughs> easy or you have some struggles in that first couple of years? I think there's um, struggles throughout the entire journey, yeah. you know, sort of certainly in the first couple of years. So... How we started was we found a distributor in Sydney. So every week we would travel down from the lower Blue Mountains and we would sell our 30 packets a week. We would get $30 for our 30 packets a week and go and have a great big feed in Chinatown. Right. <laughs> we didn't reinvest that $30 into the business and come back up the mountains for our week of service, you know, at the restaurant. So that's how it grew a little bit. We had to move the baking from the restaurant because that couldn't accommodate the needs. And we subleased the downtime of a local bakehouse. We started literally one day a week and then it went to three days a week and then it blew out to five days a week. And then it went to our hours blew out where we were seeing the bakers come in and out 6am in the morning till 10pm at night we were baking lavosh. Then that rest, uh, the bakehouse came up for sale. So we bought the bakehouse to keep Courage on Kitchen in because it was working for us. So we had to become bakers and the bakery had bread, pies and cakes. So you now got another business. Yes. <laughs> Making things that possibly aren't what you're passionate about but Absolutely. kind of pay the bills and that's exactly right. so, so you've got that's a restaurant right. which is probably turning over thousands a week and then you've got you're selling some lavosh down in sydney for 30 bucks mm. so you've got this big wheel mm -hmm. a restaurant little wheel that's the lavosh mm. at some point those wheels have swapped was there a eureka moment lavosh is the future or did it just kind of oh, find your way absolutely a eureka moment what happened was by 1997, we'd actually sold the restaurant. We were looking after a function centre 
and making lavash. And, another business? Yes. <laughs> and doing outside catering. So we okay. were the juggle. It was all food, but we were juggling. Yeah. Yeah. And from there, we took a stand at Fine Food Show Australia that cost us $3,500. And we ummed and ah, do we invest that? Do we spend that? Is that wasting our money? Back in 97, $3,500 was massive money. Yeah. So we couldn't afford to fit out the stand. It looked fairly horrible if I think about it, really. But what it allowed us to do was to find out who was using our product. We went there to find out what we didn't know and we didn't understand the distribution market. We were just a couple it was baking. a learning experience. Absolute yeah. learning experience. But the gem is at that show, a supermarket manager came along and he was developing a concept store in Broadway. And he yes, said, love yeah. your product, your packaging won't work. And he gave us a listing in Coles, and it's why this brand exists today in Australian pantries. That was the beginning of the brand into supermarkets. So what an amazing punt that three and a half thousand dollars was. Yes, it was. And and I think no guarantees on that. Uh, no. Just... And that actually brings to the fact that in business, if you do want to succeed, there's an element of risk in business. Can't always. Avoid it. It's just how much skin in the game are you prepared to sacrifice to get to the next step. And everybody has their own uh, safety net. Yeah, risk. a risk profile. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so it's sort of like, yep, we did that. We got that listing and it just gave us the opportunity to grow. Of course, we really would have liked to have said, yeah, thanks. And now you can send pallet loads into a distribution centre <laughs> and they'll distribute it out. But it didn't work that way. They gave us um, a direct-to-store listing, which meant the journey of loading the van every week and developing a relationship store by store by store. So you had to visit the store manager of each store and say, would you like some of our lavosh? Here it is, have a taste, etc." Had to do all of that. And the journey to get to each store was Ben would load the van and we decided to target the North Shore in Sydney because it was the demographics that would adopt this product. And back then you had a store manager, a grocery manager, a biscuit aisle manager, dock, ticketing office and the front desk as well. So you had six touch points in that one store and we had to build store by store. So Ben would sign in, go and find either store manager or the biscuit aisle manager, go and talk about exactly the product. Yes, you can have this bit of space. It was always on the bottom shelf. Go back out, sign out of the store, go round to the dock, Load it onto the dock, come back around, sign back into the store, go out and get the product, bring the product to shelf, face it up, then go to ticketing office, wait in line <laughs> get to get tickets. the ticket, get the ticket, put it on, and thanks, mate, goodbye. So the relationships were built one by one. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's certainly hard work. And it wasn't <laughs> a lot later that you weren't able to do that anymore. It all got centralised. I don't know what year it was, but in the 2000s? Yeah, it, early um, 2000, yeah. You couldn't go and sell things directly into a shop. Well, in our case, Woolworths came along in 2000 and the biscuit buyer at that time was trying to create a premium entertaining segment in Woolworths. In Woolworths, yeah. And we got a listing and we were given a um, DC listing distribution centre so we could get to send pallets in. And then eventually 
Coles gave us a distribution centre deal as well. So at that point you're doing economies of scale and you can ship things off in... Yeah, it's still very much when you talk about doing economies of scale. In manufacturing, certainly, and and in any product-based business, without a doubt, it's like you edge forward, you know, while you're trying to find those efficiencies within the manufacturing or within the production because it's like, yes, we want to take that big order... Our current facility, our current what we're doing is very labour intensive. It's going to cost us. So we had to find ways to make all of that efficient as we grew and as we knew we had a definite opportunity and market going forward. The more we stayed in the game of Lavosh, the more it did drive because the demand just became... There were so many people wanting us to make it under their name, for example. So that was a very um, strategic decision, not to make it under other brands. We did decide after we had got some traction with it that we wanted to build a brand and be identified for that. And staying true to that value set allowed us to actually keep growing because somebody will always come and wave a carrot under your nose in business. Mm. And, And some of those names were really popular names who wanted us to make for them. But we went, no, not prepared to do that. Uh, You talked about risk. Uh, How would you describe your risk profile? Are you a high risk, (laughs) low risk? You're somewhere in the middle? Very high risk. I'd have to say we're a high risk. Um, Also driven, and I think drive is also associated with risk. Because if you're driven, then you can do an educated and calculated risk. We didn't just jump in water, for the boiling water for the sake of it. We knew it was boiling but we knew we had to be able to swim in that boiling water. So when we eventually got into the supermarkets, which is called FMCG, Fast Moving Consumer Goods, we knew that we were now playing in a in an area with a lot of big boys, so to speak. And if you want to play that game, you can't get in there and complain. Get in there and play the game and work out every little bit of information that you can. I'm, I'm a very big believer and I have always asked so many questions. There is never, ever, ever a dumb question at all in business. Never. Because somebody's tip. going to give you a bit of information that you can just draw on and learn a little bit more. Just vacuum up as much information as you can. When we got thrown into the supermarkets and we didn't understand the process, we didn't understand the tiers of margins, we didn't understand how we had to promote. We just were like a lot of people go, oh, wow, they want our product. How fantastic Yay. is that? Yes. It's <laughs> another thing that's right. Yay. And I learned very quickly, and a lesson I give to a lot of people, and this is out of experience, is get your ego out of your business. Yeah, good. It's not really easy to do that in the early days because you are, you can be excited and, wow, we're building this brand. In February, we're 28 years old as a business. Wonderful. Congratulations. Thank you. But I think we ever thought 28 years on we would be here and still here and and Australian manufacturing not being an easy, you know, gig at all, but we decided we were staying Australian. Right. Yes. So so that was a key uh, decision. Was that driven by values or driven yeah. by control? Or what no, was the... definitely values because there would have always been an opportunity, which we never, ever investigated, to go off and manufacture in the Asian countries, you know, ship Australian flour across and manufacture there and then bring the product back in. But we did decide with a name like Harajong Kitchen, that's Aussie through and yes. through and that didn't sit well with us at all to be able to do that so we just decided that was our role and that's 
our belief, our value set was to remain in Australian manufacturing. And who knows when COVID came along, how important Australian manufacturing has become. Yeah, so the wow. decision great, to great stay point. true to your values has been obviously paid off over yeah. the time. I, I respect that because we've made exactly the same decision to keep everything in Australia. We've done that for culture reasons, to make sure that our business maintains its culture without spreading it all over the world. Uh, and and there's, there's control and delivery yes. issues as well. Yes, that's true. I talk to business owners every day about their marketing and the consistent feedback is that they feel lost in the digital marketing world. Usually they've got someone to have a go at some SEO, Google ads or social media, but they often don't know what work is even being done and they can't see any results. This is where our team and I can help with our digital marketing playbook. Over the past 10 years, we've designed a process to help you achieve your business goals by speaking to the right people at the right time with the right message. We analyze your competitors, create the unique voice you should use in the marketplace, map out your customer's path to purchase, and then create expert search, social media, and nurture strategies to attract the right people to your business. This is all underpinned by our belief that the best digital marketing puts people first. If you need help to get your marketing on the straight and narrow, why not drop us a line at theonlineco.net. You can have a quick chat to one of our team to see how we can best support you in growing your business. So you take a lot of risks. Was there ever a risk that went south? <laughs> okay, probably. how many risks went Yeah, that's probably... <laughs> how many went, risks went south, Karen? It was probably more the question. Because people look at you and they go, success, mm. this is working, big brand, mm. must have been easy. And then they look at their business going, I just made a mistake, I went down the wrong path. But we've all made mistakes. And we have all made mistakes. You're exactly right. I want to go back to 2004 in the early days. We had outsourced manufacturing to another company that we taught to make this product for us. Failed miserably. Um, they didn't have the same machinery. They didn't deliver consistency for us. Yes. And Ben and I, at the end of service, on often on many nights, would sit in an unmanned warehouse and unpack a pallet of lavosh and each packet on that pallet to repack what came across as a full pallet was delivered in the end as a third of a pallet because the consistency of that product wow. wasn't good. But that's we were true to our brand. We could have just sent that out and we wouldn't be sitting here 28 years later. One thing we do know, one of our values in our business, is our product is loved. It's not just enjoyed or it's not just served or right. it's not just tasted. It's, it's loved. loved. And out of that, for us, consistency is key because if we want our consumer to continue to love the product and continue to buy it, we have to deliver them consistency. So we had to make the tough decisions, which meant, of course, we lost money lost or money, you're chasing yeah. that. There's been a lot of lost money as you're going along, but that's risk as well. Yeah. There's been a lot of gains and a lot of um, you know challenges so 2004, Arnott's comes out with a product as Lavosh and in a range of four savoury flavours. It's only a matter of time, right? One of the big boys is of coming Of course, along. that's exactly yeah. And there is always, the Me Too products will always be there. It's just how do you cut through in market? So they spelled it the French way, L-A-V-O-C-H-E. Yes. We spell it L-A-V-O-S-H. There's a couple of other versions of how you can spell it. They priced higher than us. So what that effectively said is, we're better than you. That was a statement. That's you know? right. Absolutely. We're taking the high ground. We're better than you. 
So we honestly thought as a family business, six years on the shelf, we didn't have a lot of marketing dollars. We thought we were dead in the water. So we put a little note in each packet and all it said was, this is a David and Goliath battle. And we asked our consumer to continue to support us and share it with their friends. And the buyer tells us we outsold that other brand two to one and we stayed on the shelf. Incredible. And they didn't. And that is they such didn't, a... They're gone? No, they were gone. Yay. <laughs> it is. Well, it's, not, it's, it's really... I love that story because it's real, number one. Yeah. But we had to think outside the square because we weren't prepared to lay down and die and be trampled on. We said, no, we've got this far. We've got drive. We've got, you know, resilience initiative. We're not going down without a fight is what we said. And was yeah. your initial response, I'm going to fight, or was it, oh my goodness? Oh no, it was fear as. Yeah. You, know? <laughs> you know that face everything and rise or fear everything and run sort of thing? And yeah. it was like, oh my goodness. We really did think we were gone. And so it was that moment of just stop and gather, regather your thoughts. What's the opportunity? And I also talk about the window of opportunity only opens for a very short time. And you have to make a conscious decision to seize it or to close it because it won't always be there. And that window was open for us to grab this and do something with it because had we not sent that note out in the packet, who knows where we would have been. We could still be here. We may not, you know. You don't know, do you? Absolutely. You've talked about consistency there quite a few times. That word's popped up. And consistency... Obviously, you've got machines making things these days. It's not all handmade like the good old days. But it comes down to people, uh, relying on people, yeah. hiring great people. And, and the other thing you've done there that's people-focused is you sent them a little note. You've thought about the person. And we always say the best way to grow a small and medium business is to put people first. There's your customers uh, and then there's your team as well. Absolutely. Everyone has um, a story within the story. You know, our story is Courage on Kitchen story, but there are so many people within that. And interesting enough, only yesterday I was at a function. This lovely lady comes up and says to me, we started eating with you and Ben in a restaurant in Richmond and we followed you to Courageong and we're still now buying your lavosh. And I went... How wonderful. That was beautiful. It was such that... For someone to be able to come up and say that and to be able to meet that, that 28 years on... You're still influencing somebody. We call them the Courage on Kitchen family. So Love our team it. is the yeah. Courage on Kitchen family. And we're very much about the value set of family. What does that look like within the workplace? Everybody has to come to work for a purpose. So we actually engage in overemployment. We've got a deaf employee. We've got somebody with brain injury. Um, lovely Trelina. She's been with us six years now and she's... Um, intellectually challenged and originally we put her into a cleaning role and we realized she has so much more potential now she's on the line and she is if you have a toolbox meeting Trelena can you know repeat that back for you line for line and she's brought such joy to everybody who works here and that's what's really nice so not everybody can work in a family business they it's just not for them some people like the corporate structure yeah we found a balance between the two that's what we offer. So tell me what happened in 2012. 2012, my gut gets a little bit tight, you know, remembering all the... Right. The, it was a tough time. The GFC, I think, happened in 2008. 
That's right. And we didn't feel any real effects. And and often um, in a product where we sit as a gourmet high-end product, coming out of recession, etc., we haven't tended to be as affected because people still choose their high-end product that they like to enjoy. And then we also um, we filter into food service and restaurants as well as supermarkets. So we've got a cross-section range of business, which is a balance of our risk. Right. But in 2012... Our main distributor had a model change and we just didn't see the writing on the wall. And it's one of those external environmental factors that you just can't control but you have to be aware of. So whilst you don't have control of it, e.g. COVID, whilst you don't have (laughs) control of it, you have to be prepared for the what-ifs. And I think we weren't prepared for the what-ifs back then. Basically, the distributing company was bought out by a Chinese company. And whilst we have a hero product, our Labosh Bites, we have a tail end of products, so a long tail of products that don't always, you know, aren't as high selling as the main one. And that happens in every business that's typically. Right. So that's A20 just, rule, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly right. So our tail of our products were taken off the list. So we only had... So they, for us, were a significant income combined. Right. They all add up. Yeah. And we still had all this packaging we had to throw out. And we got signed into a deal that we just... It's like what I say, you don't know what you don't know. And we couldn't go and take those products to another market. The company was very good with us. All credit to them of how they helped us to try and get through this. But the journey went to... um, yeah, we did nearly lose absolutely everything in jest. I say, you know, the business, the house, the kids, the soccer ball, the glass. It was like, <laughs> but it was so incredibly stressful. Right. We didn't want to lose any of our team and everybody on the team pulled together, particularly in manufacturing, took a reduced rate, cut back the hours so everybody got a slice of the pie. They certainly had the option to, you know, go and look for work somewhere else. But really, we didn't lose anybody at all. That was so invaluable because... It takes the team to get us there. This isn't my doing and it's not Ben's doing. It's a whole Everybody's, family, yeah, of right. everybody moving in the same direction and being able to take those hits. We, Ben and I personally, yeah, did suffer. I mean, there's a lot that you're living at a level of lifestyle and then suddenly, you know, you can't afford to do some very simple things. We had to come back to very basic. It takes a level of humility, doesn't it? It was. To look at the numbers and go, it's not what it used to be and I need to make some some changes. So coming off the back of that, we remodelled the company. So we had one entity that really looked after everything then. So we broke our business into manufacturing, wholesaling and brand management. And we also have a private label brokerage arm that actually will, you know, negotiate other deals amongst, as long as it's about (laughs) Lavosh. It's all about that. (laughs) So we came out of it. We also found ourselves a silent investor who helped us get through. And that person has been incredible for us. And we've managed to come back to a place that we're comfortable with. Manufacturing can flip on its head very, very, very quickly. If you're not watching your commodity prices, your, you know, and looking for efficiencies within your manufacturing plant, that is the only way as an Australian manufacturer you can actually make money going forward. In 2018, so we've got the drought, the you know, Australian farmer is in the midst of his drought. Being a wheat-based product, 
and proudly supporting Australian wheat farmers since 1993, we had a 29% increase in flour prices. Yeah. <laughs> it hurt. <laughs> that's a, that, I don't know what your margin is, but <laughs> that's a serious erosion of your margin. Absolutely. It was. And if we not had, all, but more, yeah. Yeah. And what happened at that point? So we were looking for a slight increase at um, supermarket the price to get us through. It took us five months to get that accepted through at the supermarkets. We lost significantly and we weren't the only one. This was just the, whole the industry. Yeah. Flour was more expensive. Yeah. Also, butter doubled in price over two years. So that was, you know, commodity prices that just went through the roof, absolutely. And that was just... We had to find ways forward. And we've been true to our recipe, so there's always an opportunity to go, oh, let's find a cheaper ingredient. Throw a number in, throw this in, you know, that'll do that (laughs) sort of thing. We've never done that. We've stayed true to our recipe. Without a doubt, there's been very much times where our, you know, margin has dropped significantly while we've gone through those challenges. But we are high risk takers and we're here to stay as an Australian brand. Courage on Kitchen has made 28 years Uh, as a brand and it deserves another 28 years onwards it just would be nice to sit you know alongside the Vegemite and be the iconic brand that still sits on the shop yeah well I remember when I first met you three years ago I went straight down the shops and we thoroughly (laughs) tested your (laughs) lavage big fans G'day listeners, we'd really love to get to know you a little and start a conversation. So we've launched the Getting to the Heart of Business community. It's a Facebook group where we post behind the scenes updates, chat to you about the topics that come up on the show and share tips to help you with your digital marketing. Jump on Facebook and search Getting to the Heart of Business and say hello. Now you're a high risk taker. With high risks comes maybe larger storms. When you're in the middle of the storm, how do you cope with the stress? I think everybody copes differently. I think my resilience personally has been built up over the years of just my entire life. I You get stronger, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, like, yeah. it's like running. You can just get fitter as That's you go. exactly what it is. I truly believe um, communication is the key. If you shut down and don't talk about it, you can't hold it within. It needs to be shared and talked about and you need to look at who are the top five people that you want to be with and go to that support network. That's probably, you know, what we did. And being in a partnership in business as well, that ain't always easy at all. (laughs) Far from it. But as long as, you know, the respect for partner in their roles they play, you can actually, yeah, move forward these challenges. Yeah, so I guess it's important that if you are a low-risk person not to act like a high-risk person, you you psychologically are not going to be able to sustain that. Yeah. If you're not prepared for the worst-case scenario, don't put your toe in the water. When the hard times hit, what things do you put in place prior to that to try and uh, reduce your risk? Like, you try and keep a certain amount of money in the bank? Are there, are there things you put in place to mitigate? Mm, I think one of the other values of Courage on Kitchen has come about is partnerships are key. And there were times when we did have massive cash flow issues. We would always be the first on the phone to ring our suppliers to try to set up some type of payment plan. You know, this is what we can commit to. And can you accept that? And most were very obliging of that. Because you've talked to them. That you've talked to them. Yep, that's, that's exactly right. right. If you shut down... Nobody knows how to support you in business or can even know that it's happening. So the lines of communication both to customers and suppliers and your team is 
absolutely vital. So you've also developed and protected the brand over 28 years. And I think when people talk about brand, they often talk about the logo and the colours, which is important that people visually recognise it. But you've protected the brand in terms of ingredients and quality. From a marketing perspective, how important has that process of just uh, guarding that brand? It's key because ultimately when somebody mentions your name, and that would be, you know, even as a person, what do you want them to say about you? And that would be almost like they talk about your um, (laughs) obituary, is it? You know, what do you want to be said? Yes, you know, what do you want to have said about you? And this is like, what do you want said about this brand? A story I remember in the early days, this lady comes up to me at a trade show and we had done a little pantry tin as a promotional opportunity within the supermarkets. The tin would stay in the pantry and then people would continue to fill it with Courage on Kitchen Lavosh. And we found out over the years it was used in the um, workshop for nails and the kids' playroom <laughs> gets, for gets pencils. Yeah. That's exactly right. But it was there. You know, Caradon Kitchen was still the there in their in home. The in front of them. Yeah, Absol- like the magnet on the fridge that the electrician gives you. Yep, yeah, absolutely. So the little tin was given as a, a giveaway. This lady comes to me and says to me at the time, oh, I bought your product from uh, such and such deli and I paid $10 for this product with a tin in it. Now, I was horrified at that because that wasn't the going price. It was way above. It was probably two and a half times. Yeah, so that was significant in that respect. But what I understood is that when a consumer trusts your brand, it doesn't matter what they pay at all. They're prepared to pay. Coke, I think, has it down pat. When you go into a garage, you know, and you grab your petrol and you've got your cold bottle of Coke, $4 maybe a bottle or something, whatever whatever that might be. When you go into the supermarket and you're grabbing it in bulk, you're paying the equivalent of a dollar a can. It doesn't matter. You don't question the price on Coke when you go into the garage because you know it's going to deliver you exactly what you want. And that's it's the same the, every that's, time. Yeah, and that is the success of a brand. And that's why the Courage on Kitchen consistency is key because every time you pick up that packet, you know exactly what you're going to get. So that's deeper. essentially, 28 years later, you're saying, does this arrive on my customer's table as if I was there? Absolutely. All the way back in the day? Yep, and that's the experience we want them to have as if I'm standing right there next to them, serving that lavosh with them and saying enjoy well, that's a that's a lovely vision that's something you can communicate to your team and they they will get that and buy into that yes without a doubt also a lot of the team haven't gone the whole journey of course so they actually need to hear this story more often because they don't know all those dramas in the 28 years they'll have years. to listen to the podcast yeah. <laughs> definitely well i'm also interested in your family background you grew up in some pretty humble beginnings yeah i definitely didn't have um all of this handed to me on a plate. I am a child of the 60s. I am um, one of three originally. I'm a twin. My dad died when I was very young as a babe. And then my mum remarried. Three of us became five of us. And we lived in housing commission in Sydney. And I made it to year 10. And I so wanted to go on to year 12. I wanted to be a maths teacher. And my family couldn't afford to put me through to year 12 to eventually go to university. It was just wasn't the opportunity there. And so my mum said, if you don't get a job over the school holidays, you can go back to school. Well, my mum had me a job in three days after leaving. <laughs> so that was my life. And that's where I went. But I think it's a real lesson in just because you're delivered something, you don't have to accept that. You know, yeah. you can what you will achieve or where you will go is inside you. Those experiences help me decide 
where I want to go. But my tenacity and grit and determination has got me there. And then, of course, meeting a partner who obviously had the same type of idea as myself yes. and vision and brought together those skill sets to move forward. Um, that's how Courage on Kitchen became born. So I was actually out training staff in hospitality and building a bit of a business along that way. Right. Can't help yourself, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's what I did. And it was my passion Suddenly I'm into Courage on Kitchen building a business, a brand, an identity, and here I am 28 years on going out to repeat the journey to share the knowledge. Yeah, look, I, I love that story. Uh, we, we've interviewed different people with different levels of education, formal education, I should say. Some people left at year 10, some people got doctorates, and it doesn't really matter. No, it doesn't <laughs> define you. No, That not education at all. doesn't define you. No. The way you handle the experiences and opportunities that are delivered to you in life takes you on a journey that will get you to wherever you're going. Now, you don't work full-time in Courage on Kitchen anymore. No. You have moved out into a a mentoring couples role. I have. Helping people with your experience, which is what you're doing now. So I still spend 20 25% of my time in Courage on Kitchen, and I'm still CEO and co-founder. My role is at a very high-level, strategic level. But out of all those learnings... Of the 28 years, I've realised there is something to share. And I, of course, love to inspire other businesses because the journey of creating a business, creating a product, creating a service that you can deliver and improve somebody else's life is really satisfying. Very, yeah. Very satisfying. And since I've made it known that I've actually stepped away and actually offering this service, it's really interesting about how many people are actually are approaching me and, and wishing to engage me. Um, And now, of course, I'm also available, you know, so on the speaking market. And I think every time you hear me speak of this journey, there's always something new that comes out of it, that there's a gem that somebody will take a learning. And that's what I hope from this, this podcast, and from the future of where I take the mentoring and speaking business, is that I can inspire somebody just to take their next step to their level of success. Yeah, that's wonderful. It's my joy. Yeah, beautiful. Well, thank you, Karen. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, I've learned a a lot and I really hope the listeners do as well. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking with you. You can find out more about Karen's work at karenlebsamft.com and at carriageonkitchen.com.au. And of course, if you're feeling hungry, you should definitely go and try some of her snacks. I have a few too many times. You'll find them in your local snack aisle. So, Jess... Karen is really passionate about her brand. Yeah, definitely. That came across, didn't it? She uh, protects that brand with her life. Tell me about the importance of brand in marketing. This day and age, it's so important, isn't it? Particularly with social media, consumers have access to brands really 24-7. Yeah. You can directly message a brand whenever you want to ask some questions or give them feedback. So brand and brand consistency is so important these days. So brand consistency, that's, uh, that's really where Karen was talking about because she's so passionate about the quality of the product so that everybody's getting the same thing every single time. And really what that builds is trust. It does, doesn't it? So you know you can buy it and they're not going to be all smashed to pieces and you only need to break trust a couple of times and people stop buying. Even once. Yeah. Often, I mean, how many times have you purchased a product and you, you know, you've got a preconceived idea of what you think that product should be or how it should appear or be presented to you and you receive it? Yeah. And if it doesn't fit that idea that you've got, then often you just go, okay, that's it. 
first and last time I purchased from this brand. So how how would you recommend to a business to establish their brand using social media? I think in Courage on Kitchen's case, we'd be talking probably Facebook and Instagram as their primary. Oh, uh, definitely, primary definitely, tactics. yeah, yeah. yeah. I think you know they've got a large cross section of target markets in a variety of age groups and wanting to purchase from them. So they'll use a lot of different platforms. Facebook and Instagram are the main two. The big ones. They're the big ones. One thing that companies in the FMCG space, one thing they should be doing is using some monitoring tools. So there's a lot of tools available where you can listen and monitor about what's being said about your brand on social media or what's organically being said. So what what comments are people making in in Facebook groups as an example or tweeting about or posting hashtags on their Instagram? And in this day and age, it's necessary to do that. If you're on the front foot and you're keeping up to speed and up to date with what's being said about your brand, you can pivot quickly. You can be more diverse and you can make sure that you are consistent in your branding. Because if there is, you know, in the case of Lavosh Crackers, if there was somebody who had received a, a packet that wasn't quite up to what their expectations were, if they had commented about that and, and made some comment on social media about it, Courage on Kitchen could be straight on top of it. Yeah. Could be- in contact with that particular customer and I, rectify the situation. I, I loved how Karen's talking about in the early days she was serving people in the restaurant and then in these days she's still serving them by giving them great quality but really that personal touch can come through in the social media. Oh, definitely. What I would say, have somebody in your business dedicated to watching social media channels and what's being said. So I guess it depends on the size of your business and the exposure that your brand has. Definitely. So so Courage on Kitchen products are in every grocery store in Australia, but your business, you might have just started or maybe you're not in you know, fast moving consumer goods, you might be in services or something. And, and so your brand's only known to maybe hundreds of people instead of hundreds of thousands. And so monitoring your brand will, will not be a massive job, but but just listening and being aware is a really good start. Tell me then about what you would recommend in terms of scheduling for social media and then like paid social media. Yeah. So for scheduling, there are a lot of tools available. You know, we've got applications like Sprout Social and Hootsuite and Buffer and and all of those and they're all great. You'll find one which suits you in the way that you work. You can even schedule your posts for Facebook and Instagram through Facebook Business Manager. You know, that's a a free tool that's available to everybody. You know, it's a matter of just being a little bit organised, setting aside some time, maybe 10 minutes a day to post something. You could even set aside an hour a week, come up with a week's worth of content well, that's probably a better plan because the, the day tends to get away with you. It and does, if you can yeah. do an hour a week or even two hours a month, you can potentially just have it all planned and rolling out and then your job for the rest of the month is just listening. That's right. You know, So you could spend that one to two hours scheduling your content for the rest of the month and then maybe spend five to ten minutes a day just monitoring. Consistency is everything though, isn't it? It is. Posting on one day and then six weeks later posting again. We see this a lot, right? People are just busy in their business. That's right. So it's kind of got to be put into a slot. It does. You really do have to make the time for it. And there's really no excuse for thinking, oh, social media is a new type of marketing. It's not Not new. (laughs) It's been here for a while. It's not going anywhere. It's going to evolve. It will continually evolve and we need to evolve with it. And we, you know, brands need to be using it to hit their markets. Okay, so there's paid methods, primarily through Facebook and Instagram, so Facebook Business Manager, to get a lot of eyeballs onto your content uh, for not that much money. What sort of objectives and tactics would you use through Facebook Business Manager for a fast-moving consumer good? 
there's a few that you, a few different ways you can go. So if you do sell online, any of the conversion objectives are yeah. a really good way to go. So we can drive people to your website. We're having a look at people who are purchasing, adding to cart, those type of things. We can retarget using your pixel. If you don't have an e-commerce function, there's a few other things that we could do. You know, we could target more broadly, so we can just drive traffic to your site, or we could use brand awareness and, and build awareness of yeah, your brand. Or, or video views. Video views. We've got messaging as well. So if you have the resources available, you could start conversations with people and their actual ads, the call to action is click to message. You could have a chatbot. Yep, which will answer some of the basic questions up front before an actual person has to talk to them. That's right. All right. Well, that's a, a few ideas for people to establish their brand using social media. Uh, one last thought is that for a fast-moving consumer good or a business like this, the brand is going to build trust and what you need to do is to build probably a little bit of trust with an awful lot of people. Yeah. And so social media is really great for doing that, just having small touch points, a little video, a little post, something funny, like different different touch points to, to make people remember you and then when they're walking down the aisle they go bing oh i've seen courage on kitchen and that trust is established with other businesses like service-based businesses it's possible you actually want an awful lot of trust on a few people you might have to go a lot deeper so that would require a, a different strategy well thanks for your insights there jess so coming up next week, we have Josh Nichols, founder and CEO of Platinum Electricians. I think you're going to really enjoy this chat with Josh. Josh actually started as a solopreneur, one guy working out of his bedroom when he was living at home with his parents. And he's grown a national brand with roughly 300 employees all around Australia. He's got wisdom for people of all levels, whether you're just starting out or whether you've created a big business. Uh, his insights into culture into growth, into hiring, uh, profound. This episode of Getting to the Heart of Business was brought to you by The Online Co. You can find us at theonlineco.net. It was produced by Claire Bruce. The music was by Harry Parnwell. If you've enjoyed this, please feel free to share the episode, uh, subscribe and leave us a review. Take care.